What are you doing? What's going on? You were sleepwalking. I'm sorry. Is Charlie here? Why are you scared of me? What? I never wanted to be your mother. Why? I was scared. I didn't feel like a mother. But she pressured me. Then why did you have me? It wasn't my fault. I tried to stop it. How? I tried to have a miscarriage. How? However I could. I did everything they told me not to do, but it didn't work. I'm happy it didn't work. You tried to kill me. No, I love you. Why did you try to kill me? I did. I was trying to save you. Why did you try to kill me? Psycho killer? Can I be the helpless victim? Okay, let's see. No, please don't kill me, Mr. Ghostface. I want to be in the sequel. I like to dissect girls. Did you know I'm utterly insane? Look at me, Damien! It's all for you! I am the eater of wood. And of children. You know, it's Halloween. I guess everyone's entitled to one good scare. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another spooky installment of the greatest October in the history of forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 246, Hereditary. Quite possibly the movie that I think maybe has scared me the most after seeing it in the theater in the last five years. The 10 years, probably. Yeah, there was definitely a little bit of sleeping with the lights on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we were still living at the uh, old apartment at That's that right. point. The old studio. <laughs> yeah, the old days. That's right. This was my favorite movie of 2018, controversially, in a year that A Star is Born was released, which yeah. is one of the big movies of this podcast. <laughs> of some, our lives. For some reason. Yeah, I'm sure this had to be in my top five that year, too, I would think. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was. Yeah. It was a big one. It's a divisive movie. It's one of those movies that I've referred to as a vibe movie. You have to be on the right vibe, the right wavelength. We'll talk a little bit more about audience reactions and our personal theatrical experience coming up. I don't know. I've talked about it before, but this type of horror is the stuff that really shakes me to my core, that Rosemary's Baby style. Yeah, I think this has some genuine scares some jump scares some very troubling things in it but there is a really well done building of dread definitely throughout 
it keeps you on the edge of your seat. It's, I know. You're just anxious the whole time. Some of it's just creepy. Some of it's downright shocking. Some of it's gruesome at parts. Yeah. So before we discuss Hereditary, as always, let's remind our listeners to follow the show on Twitter at GreatestPod. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, etc. Let us know if you'd like a sticker. Let us know if you have a listener request. We'll try to get to it as soon as possible. And follow us on Letterboxd, Zach1983 and Matt Crosby on there. It's fun now, but I do kind of have FOMO a little bit just with so many people. You can tell so many people are going to the theater again just yeah. from the check-ins. You know what I mean? Like That's what I was telling you earlier. I'm kind of overwhelmed with everything that's out in the theaters now and how infrequently we go. Well, we've been busy sure. recording. And it is it is a hardship to get to the theater. Yeah, we're going to get back into it. Yeah. We've gone a few times. Well, I've sure. gone right. like four or five. You've, You've gone more than me. Gone twice, I think, right? That seems right, yeah. So we're almost to the end of The Greatest October. I think we're going to do one more that we're going to release on Halloween. So you'll have a special Halloween treat. And it should be fun for the old-time listeners. <laughs> If for those of them that are still around. Yeah. We should get carried away, I think, with the next one. But it has been a busy month. We can't blame you if you're still playing catch-up. I think after we post the Halloween episode, there will be a little bit of a a pause. Not our usual break, but we'll probably take a week off or so. Well, we have loaded you up, I feel like. You know yeah. what I mean? It's, it's okay. We'll give it a little space to breathe. Right. We're recording this on a nice fall evening. We can hear the rain coming down outside. Yeah, the weather has turned, finally. Yeah, a little bit of a storm going on. This is a super creepy movie. This is one of the scariest movies I've ever seen in the theater, I think. Yeah, definitely stuck with me afterwards. I can. I say don't that. really even know what I would compare it to as far as, or what else I would put up there. In terms of movies, I was actually scared in the theater. Because usually by the time you're old enough to see R-rated movies, yeah, you're not really that scared of things. I know it's kind of, I think, what people would consider in the same genre. And it's not nearly as scary. But in terms of capturing that same feeling of dread and just weirdness around it, it was uh, The Witch. Yeah. I think it's a similar genre. I think this is way scarier than The Witch, though. I'd say so. Which I was never really scared about at all. Uh, but I was building up to being scared. <laughs> <laughs> I felt like it was coming the whole time. Hereditary was written and directed by Ari Aster. This was his first feature film. He made some disturbing short films prior to this, the most noteworthy of which is called The Strange Thing About the Johnsons. Which I have to be honest, I've never seen. It went viral at one point. Oh, wow. It's about a family where the son sexually abuses and molests the father. Yikes. Yeah. Wow, that does sound disturbing. Always pushing the envelope, going yeah. for the most taboo thing imaginable. I'm going to go ahead and expose my lack of expertise. Once again on this show, I have not seen any of these short films. The budget for Hereditary was $10 million. The box office worldwide was $80.2 million, which if you remember from the Uncut Gems episode about A24's lower box office halls, this makes Hereditary the highest grossing film of A24 worldwide. 
as I said, I feel like Hereditary ended up being very much a vibe movie where if you weren't on the right wavelength, you might not get into it. I know that this was very divisive. The reactions were polarizing. All you need to look at really is to see that the Rotten Tomatoes score was 89%, while the cinema score was a D+, which is polling the audiences after the fact. Uncut Gems also had a rough cinema score. There are other notable movies that had a big discrepancy between the critics and the audiences. Drive, It Comes at Night, things like that. Okay. There are plenty of examples. Some of them are A24 films. <laughs> this is an instance where I would agree with the critics. I wouldn't always. I don't think that you can rely solely upon Rotten Tomatoes or Cinema yeah. Score or anything, really. It's up to you. But this is a time when the critics seem to have picked up on something that a lot of audiences may have missed. I do think that this movie has found the right audience over time because the scores on IMDb and Letterboxd and things like that reflect more positively now. Was this the one that back when it came out, the negative reviews from people were that it was boring? Yeah, I think some people thought it was boring. I just, yeah, I can't believe that. (laughs) I was like on the edge of my seat, like wanting to leave the theater. Yeah. It's interesting because I think the gut reaction to Midsummer was much more positive right out of the gate although it didn't do as well box office wise and for me the opening of midsummer is fucked up and i was like oh no but it sort of dwindled over time i think midsummer is a movie we'll probably do on the podcast at some point i do like it a lot I like and midsummer. i think it's interesting it's not even close to being as scary as absolutely to in me. fact it has this weird like fairy tale feel to it yeah there's just something off about hereditary again If you don't pick up on it, you're not on the right wavelength. It could come off as boring or anticlimactic. There's a lot of things in the background. Yeah. There's a lot of little tiny details. There's a lot of clues. And if you're not picking up on this stuff, you're probably thinking, okay, not a lot happens. And then the ending is crazy for no reason. And then that's it. I think you're going to enlighten me a little bit. But, you know, there's there are so many layers to why it's unsettling. And they kind of continue to unfold as you work your way through the story. I would say that Hereditary is more akin to The Exorcist and Rosemary's Baby than to your standard horror films of the 2010s. I'd say so, yes. The movies I like. Aster was going for moments that had emotionally justified scares rather than your standard jump scares, and I kind of get what he means. The moments that are scary in the film are packed with emotion. There's a lot of family drama. That's mostly what this movie feels like at times, coping with horrific events that are grounded in reality. I also found it to be, and you know, I don't throw this compliment out there very frequently on this show, completely unpredictable. Yes. Really nailed that, I thought. Well, there's one specific reason that we'll discuss throughout, but yeah. I think they did a good job of keeping everybody off guard. Yes. In a very specific way. And there's things that, when we get to the parts, I can dive into them more. But there's things that, if you're following the horror movie playbook, it goes a certain way. And I think in this movie, it doesn't go that way. 
Our experience in the theater was interesting. We actually ran into somebody that had recently moved back to Pittsburgh that we hadn't really seen much of. Yeah, that was kind of like a horror movie in and of itself. Yeah, for various reasons. (laughs) And I actually reached out to that person after, and she did not like this movie. Yeah. And it really opened my eyes about how audiences can perceive things. Yes, now I remember that. And I do feel like... That just shut down the conversation. Yeah, sort of. I feel like every, not everyone in that theater was on the same page we were on. And yeah. I've heard that there were theatrical experiences where probably younger people were laughing, especially during some of the tongue-clicking parts and stuff. Okay. And yet yeah. I've also heard stories where there are moments in the film where there's something in the background that you can't see clearly at first, and then as people are seeing it, you're hearing gasps throughout the theater, yeah. and it adds a whole other level to the theatrical experience. So it's good and bad. It just depends on what kind of crowd you I got. remember ours being mostly non-reactive. Yeah. Is that your memory as well? We're screaming. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, crying like, can we leave, please? Oh, boy. Yeah, it wouldn't have crossed my mind to laugh at the, the tongue clicking. If anything... My anxiety dials in on that. Hereditary is a heavy film about suffering, grief, and trauma accentuated by some terrifying supernatural elements. Astor has stated he was equally influenced by family dramas like Ordinary People, The Ice Storm, and In the Bedroom, as much as classic horror films like Rosemary's Baby and Don't Look Now. There's a lot of family dynamics. There's a lot of trauma. He was also pulling it from movies like Carrie, which we talked about this month, or The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover. Oh. With Helen Mirren. That's right. Different things like that. This movie is actually about grief and trauma, whereas I think a lot of other horror films use that as a crutch, maybe namely Halloween Kills, where they claim that the movie is about those things, and yet it's really just a slasher movie with a lot of blood and violence pretending to be a metaphor for grief and trauma. This movie dives into those painful emotions. Definitely. And fucks with you at your core it's beyond a, just a regular horror movie. It's a real scene going on at this family dinner table. Yeah, it's fucked up. Fucked up things happen and people get real about it oh, yeah. in a way that's uncomfortable. Right. You take out all the supernatural shit, and this movie is still uncomfortable. Absolutely. Especially when Annie is talking about her past. Yeah. <laughs> Just not good. So let's talk about Tony Collette. I love her. I've really come to have an appreciation for her over the last few years that I feel like I didn't have for many years as a, as a film viewer. It's a joke and an embarrassment that not only was she not nominated for Best Actress, that she didn't win. I know she's unbelievable. She should have no- been nominated and won. The range of emotion that she hits in this movie. The only solace you can take is that it was considered a snub at the time. It's not like I'm just ranting and raving out of my own mind over here. People took note of that back then. At least that she wasn't nominated. I don't know that people were saying that she necessarily should have won. I think people right. were a little bit more realistic. It seems unlikely for a horror movie. But that was the year that Olivia Coleman won for The Favorite, I believe. Oh, yes. And I think Lady Gaga was nominated as well that year. Glenn Close. Wow. Tony Collette's performance is way more memorable than any of those. And for yes, sure. I'm including Lady Gaga. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, 
I have some loyalties there, but no, of course. I mean, she is unbelievable in this movie. This is an emotionally draining and insane performance. It's unlike anything you'll see most years. Right. This would stand out in almost any year. Yeah, she's all over the map. She's manic. She's anxious. She's having nervous breakdowns. Yeah, and she also manages to humanize it and keep it real. It's not totally, a caricature totally, of right. these like outlandish emotions. Yeah, it doesn't feel cartoony at all. So let's get into it because there's going to be a lot to cover. This movie is dense. It is layered. I think there's a lot of things that people may miss on their first viewing. I know I did. Yeah. It's one of those movies that as soon as you leave the theater, you might want to start Googling stuff and reading stuff. Even when I was watching it and doing these notes, I was Googling questions I was to try like, to figure out answers. And there was discussions online and I was getting more information. I needed to put like Seinfeld on just to get it out of my head. <laughs> well, luckily when I do these notes, I yeah. pause it so many goddamn times it loses <laughs> some of its power. I'm like, yeah. okay, writing, writing, writing. I watched it in the morning this time, which was helpful. Well, when I started it yesterday, it was light, and by the time I was finishing, it was dark. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was getting nervous. It's I was like, like I have to hurry up. Lock the door. <laughs> I have to hurry up. <laughs> okay. The movie opens with an obituary. Ellen Taper Lee, 78, passed away after a prolonged illness at her daughter Annie's house on April 3rd, 2018. Oh, wow. Beloved wife it's of my, the late- uh, anniversary. <laughs> beloved wife of the late Martin Lee- R.I.P., devoted mother of Annie Lee Graham and the late Charles Lee, R.I.P. There's two clues right there in the first few sentences of this obituary. Okay. The deceased brother is named Charles. Yes. And he's dead. Right. So there you go. Right there, (laughs) there's something to pay attention to. Gotcha. All right. Yeah, that went by me. Cherished grandmother of Peter Graham and Charlie Graham. Hmm. She's also survived by her son-in-law, Dr. Stephen Graham. She will be missed, reposing at Kingstone Funeral Home, Friday, 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. Funeral service yeah. to be held on Saturday, 10 a.m. I got to tell you, based on Annie's eulogy, not so sure that she's going to be missed. Burial will take place at Spring Blossom Cemetery. So here we go. This sets the mood and the tone. Death. In a way, if you were inundated with the trailers for Hereditary as we were back in those days. Oh, totally. This furthers the narrative that is put out there by the trailer. And this is something we're going to circle back to later. And this is something that we were alluding to already. The misdirection of this movie is so perfect for those of us who had seen the trailer a bunch of times and thought we knew what to expect. Because there's a lot of funeral shots from the trailer. Yeah, and there's a lot of characters referencing something, and you think they're talking about Ellen. <laughs> right. That You just think they're talking about somebody else, and things get turned on their head pretty quickly. No pun intended. Oh, that's right. <laughs> One of the best things I can say about this movie, because people who have listened to the show for some amount of time, I tend to complain about longer run times, and I was stunned re-watching this that it's over two hours, because it feels so tight. It, well, it one of the things is drag on at all. It's edited in a way where almost everything seems important. That's there's just right. one thing after yep. the other. It's so dense. That's why there's a lot of notes. That's why this episode's going to run long. Absolutely. There's a lot to cover. There's clues 
there's things in almost every scene. There's something to take from it, at least. There's no wasted material. That's right. Every line is important. One of the first things we see is a pretty big treehouse in the yard, which is nice little foreshadowing. This is potentially significant for later. Oh, I had to like Google where this took place. They they probably say it at some point, but I was like, this seems like a really like cool area. What is this? Utah. Yeah, it's Utah. Yeah, we'll talk about that in a bit. Okay. But that's a, that was a specific choice. Yeah, it feels that way. One of the big things in this movie will be the miniatures that Annie works on. Annie is our main character. After we see the treehouse, we see the miniatures that transform into reality. There's a lot going on with the miniatures. Annie seems to spend a lot of time trying to recreate things from life in the miniatures. Yeah, the miniatures seem to serve as her own form of therapy to work through stuff. But there's also a lot of symbolism going on with the miniatures. Well, and fun camera work. The Graham house was built entirely on a soundstage. The production designer had to work simultaneously with the miniaturist to make sure everything matched. The movie itself utilizes a dollhouse aesthetic as the set had movable walls to capture different shots, change the scope or perception, and mess with the viewer. There's parts where the camera's moving through what would be walls because we're seeing one character go from one room to another and stuff like that. So it ends up feeling like a dollhouse that the actual actors are in. Yeah, I I definitely wasn't catching on to that, but that makes total sense. So this was not a real house. No, obviously the exterior was. Right, right. But where the interior shots, of course. Yeah, they built like a whole set. Our story will center around Annie Graham, played by Colette, who lives in Utah with her husband Steve, played by Gabriel Byrne, their 16-year-old son, Peter, played by Alex Wolf. There's and- something about the cast that they all feel like they're cast right. It's weird to see like Gabriel Byrne show up. Don't know what the hell he's been up to, really, but he, he plays this sort of defeated dad rather perfectly, I'd say. And their 13-year-old daughter, Charlie, played by Millie Shapiro. Astor chose Utah for its ominous look, the terrain. He felt like having the mountains around looked cool there's a lot of feelings of isolation yeah i think one of the things that solidified it was finding that cemetery which we'll see later oh in the yeah movie. that yeah, has it's sort of surrounded just like by a, mountains and stuff that cemetery does have just like a haunting feel to it in a weird way though it has this cold modern feel to it as the family is preparing to go to ellen's funeral Steve comes into his son's room and asks, do you know if your sister slept in her room last night? Turns out that Charlie was sleeping in the treehouse. This is Charlie's treehouse. This is somewhat significant. It's a little strange Yeah, that she seems that young and she's just wandering around to go sleep in a treehouse You wouldn't night. think this would be allowed and you also think the kid would be scared. Yes, it's also concerning that that heater is just on in there. <laughs> I know. It seems See, like you could kick it over and then you would just be engulfed in flames. <laughs> yeah, it does seem like a fire hazard. The thing with Charlie is there's something off and it won't be explained until the end of the film, basically. She walks around doing that. I know, which kind of seems like it just becomes part of the score. She doesn't really like to talk. She doesn't like to socially interact. She's off in her own world. Mm, Seems like your kind of person. Yeah, there are a few parts in this that seem 
disturbingly relatable to me. (laughs) More than one character, really. That's right. Um, It's heartening to see so many strange new faces here today. Uh, I know my mom would be very touched and probably a little suspicious <laughs> um, to see this turn out. So. My mother was a very secretive and private woman. She had private rituals, private friends, private anxieties. It honestly feels like a betrayal just to be standing here talking about her. She was a very difficult woman to read. If you ever thought you knew what was going on with her, and God forbid you tried to confront that. But when her life was unpolluted, she could be the sweetest, warmest, most loving person in the world. She was also incredibly stubborn, which maybe explains me. You could always count on her to always have the answer. And if she ever was mistaken, well, that was your opinion, and you were wrong. At the funeral for her secretive mother, Annie delivers a eulogy explaining their fraught relationship. She mentions how she's seeing a lot of strange new faces. I know, you're surprised someone didn't like come up and pull her off stage. Why? It just doesn't feel like the most flattering eulogy. Well, I think that's sometimes how they turn into okay. for certain situations. Yeah. She, I gotta get it's it not all like out it's here. that bad. <laughs> she had private rituals, Annie tells us, private friends, private anxieties. And I mean, a, and again, it's disturbing how much I can relate to this woman. <laughs> what are you thinking if you're at a funeral and somebody's talking about someone having private rituals? How do you interpret that? I guess it depends on how much you already know. Yeah. If you don't know anything, then it probably goes right by you, and you're just like, whatever. Like, <laughs> I, I think I would zone in on that and just be like, rituals? Like, I just can't get over it. We're, like, at the after party, like, where everybody's eating. I'm like, what do you think she was talking about when she said rituals? <laughs> You've got, like, a plate with, like, crackers on it, like, <laughs> crackers and cheese in your beard. <laughs> just crumbs all over. <laughs> <laughs> rituals? <laughs> People are like, oh, my God, yeah, looking get, away. Somebody's like... Goes to grab Lindsay. It's like, you got to get him out of here. Who even are you? (laughs) Are you related to these people? (laughs) Rituals. What do you think she meant by that? She's like standing right next to you, like oblivious. The late Ellen Lee is wearing a strange symbol around her neck, and Annie happens to be wearing the same one. And this is some early misdirection. And one of the things that I Googled, why is Annie wearing this symbol around her neck? And most people seem to think that she just found it in her mother's things and she thought that... It would be nice to... Yeah, it's a way to be close. Right. We learned that Annie Immunity. and her mother went through some estranged periods there's where a, they didn't speak. Yeah, there's a past there for sure. So this woman returns to her life, passes away after some time, and then... This is a way that Annie's choosing to be close to her. I don't think there's anything beyond that. She doesn't really know what the symbol is. Although there is a sense that she's had 
some indication that maybe she's had some knowledge of things that she's sort of blacked out. Yeah, well, we'll get into that. Okay. That's yeah. like a whole topic for later. At the funeral, this is the first time we hear Charlie's tongue clicking. We learn about her nut allergy. They're cramming a lot of exposition into this, but it's mostly character-based. It's definitely not story-based, which is an intentional choice. Later, Annie tells Charlie that she was her grandmother's favorite and that Ellen wouldn't even let Annie feed her because she, meaning Ellen, needed to do it. And right away, you're kind of like, what does that mean? (laughs) And you're going to find out it's fucked up. I know. (laughs) Grandma was pulling her titties out (laughs) to feed Charlie. There's definitely some weird shit in this family. (laughs) But that's one of the cool things about the movie is that they convince you that these people are normal. And then you start peeling back layers. And you're like, what the fuck? I'd love to know more about what's been going on with dad. How has he been okay with some of the stuff that went on? Yeah, we'll get to that later. Okay. I think there's some things that were maybe taken out of the original script that help explain some of that, maybe. Charlie tells her mother that she, meaning Ellen, her grandmother, wanted her to be a boy. This will also prove to be significant later on. Almost right away, you have this building sense of dread. The score is off the charts creepy. There's all kinds of weird vibes going on to it. You're not even sure why yet. I feel like even the clicking thing just becomes like part of the score. And then very early on, the writing is quite literally on the wall in Charlie's bedroom. We see the first example, and there will be a few others throughout. On Charlie's wall, the word satiny, S-A-T-O-N-Y, is scratched into the corner of the room. Later, we'll see Liftoch, Pandemonium, and Zazus will also be written on various walls in the Graham house. Huh. Satiny is a word used in necromancy. Oh, good. So there you go. (laughs) (laughs) These things are very subtle and hard to decipher, I think, for most audiences. They're very weird. Yes. Annie goes into a room. There's a box that says Mom's Things written on it. She finds a book called Notes on Spiritualism. Inside the book, there is a note from her mother. The note reads, My darling, dear, beautiful Annie, forgive me all the things I could not tell you. Please don't hate me and try not to despair your losses. You will see in the end that they were worth it. Our sacrifice will pale next to the rewards. Love, Mommy. Huh. I'm not really sure that that's the way it works out for Annie. I think the audience is supposed to interpret that as potentially loss that we've already seen, but it's disguised foreshadowing because the true loss will be upcoming. Yes. And that's probably what she's referring to. Right. (laughs) These are definitely things that are hard to decipher the first time you see the movie. Oh, absolutely. The first time that we saw this in the theater, it just seemed like chaos and horror by the end of it right no rhyme or reason to what was happening that's true it was yeah. a total non-stop nightmare once, but i didn't know what why or what was going I on know. really once you get on a certain path once a certain event happens and it's just pandemonium from then to the finish you just kind of have to go with it when annie's leaving the room that's when we get our first ghost appearance from Ellen when yeah. she shuts the light off this and whole you part can see the was, silhouette of her. It was reminding me of The Exorcist, actually, when she's in the attic in the beginning of the movie. Yeah. Because this is also the attic, right? 
Is it or no? No, I don't no this is her yet. work room. Yeah. yeah. She flicks the light switch. And before they even show you what Annie's seeing, there's a close-up of Tony Collette's face. And Tony Collette does some unbelievable face acting throughout the entire film. And she sells it to you before you even see it, which is interesting. Yeah. Because usually you would see it, then you would get the character reaction. But they almost spoil it for you. They're like, oh, here's Annie freaking out about something that we haven't shown you yet. They're that confident that it's fucked up enough that you're still going to be like, whoa. Yeah, well, they were right. (laughs) It's very creepy. Yeah. She's standing there in the dark, it seems like. And then when Annie flicks the lights back on, she's gone. Yes. It's Horrifying. sort of this ghostly silhouette version of her, but it's it is creepy. Then we see the breastfeeding diorama to confirm what you may have suspected about what Annie was telling Charlie, where it seems like Annie's breastfeeding a baby in bed and then the grandma is standing next to the bed like pulling her boob out. Yeah. <laughs> it is a wild <laughs> diorama. Yikes. These miniatures are fucked. I know, really. Very detailed. About very specific moments. Yeah, moments that I don't think your average person that's going to a miniature show would be able to relate to. There's parts where she's getting emails where people are like checking in on her work. Yeah. <laughs> and it seems to cause her panic because it seems like she's not actually working on what she should be. Yeah, who even knows I what know, she's supposed to right? be working on. <laughs> Definitely some deep-seated issues going on with Annie and her family will... Of course, learn more as we go. Yeah, let's pull at that string a little bit. (laughs) I think some things might be awry here. Even if you eliminate Ghost Grandma and all of the supernatural shit to come, (laughs) even just the fact that we're talking about this breastfeeding miniatures scene, (laughs) a lot (laughs) of weirdness here. Peter and Charlie both have scenes at school. Charlie is sitting in her classroom when a bird flies into the window full force outside. Which, as we know from The Conjuring, is a bad sign. In Peter's classroom, one of the phrases written on the chalkboard is escaping fate. This is significant for two reasons. First of all, it's a little nod to the film Halloween, where when we see Lori in class, she's discussing the idea of escaping fate. It's very much what she's talking about in a brief little classroom scene. But secondly, you could look at it as a little bit of a description of what is facing the Graham family. Yeah, and maybe him in particular, and if he could escape fate. He can't, and that's sort of the whole idea of the movie, really, and where the title comes from, because you're bound to these forces that are beyond your control, and one of those things is when things are hereditary. That's right. The miniatures are really a metaphor for our main characters. They will ultimately have no agency over what happens in the film. Even when it appears that they do, they're being manipulated by outside forces. According to Astor, quote, this is absolutely inevitable. He adds, quote, any control they try to seize is hopeless. This is a hopeless movie. <laughs> <laughs> I think they have zero control over what happens to them. This is all being set in motion. Which is one of the things that, again, I know I keep repeating myself, you clearly will have difficulty picking up on the first time you see it. Totally. He wanted to give us a story where the audience is at the same mercy as the characters. The characters don't know what's going on. Right. Neither do we. 
And then by the end, you have to sit back and figure it all out. Yeah. Although I will say, even the first time, you do come to the realization that a lot more of this was planned and part of, you know, it, it wasn't just random. Yeah. Charlie cuts off the head of the dead bird while being observed by a strange unknown woman. Later, a phone call from the cemetery comes in. They speak with Stephen. You don't really hear both sides of that conversation, but he mentions something about a desecration. Can't be good. (laughs) (laughs) No, that word is never used in a positive sense. (laughs) That night, secretly, Annie attends a support group for the bereaved, where she reveals that her mother, Ellen, was not allowed near Peter when he was born, but ended up being a significant figure in raising Charlie. And you do wonder, what's up there? Who made the decree around Peter? Yes. I think that's something that we're going to have to circle back to at the very end. Okay. What exactly is Annie's experience? What does she know versus not know? What does she subconsciously know? Maybe doesn't know on the surface. Right. That kind of a thing. It peeks its head out all throughout the movie, though, that she has this protective maternal nature, even though she doesn't think that she does. In fact, she thinks that she didn't want to be a mother. She was That's scared right. to be a mother. But it's yep. actually, if you really study what's going on, it's the opposite. Yeah. Now we've set aside some time for any newcomers that might like to speak. So anyone, if it's your first or second time with us, the floor is open. Yes. Would you like to? Maybe not. OK. No pressure. My name's Annie. Hi, Annie. Hi, Annie. My mom died a week ago, so I'm just here for trying it. I have a lot of resistance to things like this, but I, I came to these a couple of years ago. Well, I was forced to come, and I guess it, um, I guess it helped, so. um, My mom was old, and she wasn't altogether there at the end. And we were pretty much estranged before that, so it really wasn't a huge blow. But I did love her. And she didn't have an easy life. She had DID, which became extreme at the end, and dementia. And my father died when I was a baby starvation um, because he had psychotic depression and he starved himself which I'm sure was just as pleasant as it sounds and then there's my brother my older brother had schizophrenia and when he was 16 he hanged himself in my mother's bedroom and of course he suicide no blamed her accusing her of putting people inside him so that was my mom's life And then she lived in our house at the end, before hospice. We weren't even talking before that. I mean, we were, and then we weren't, and then we were. She's completely manipulative, until my husband finally enforced a no-contact rule, which lasted until I got pregnant with my daughter. I didn't let her anywhere near me when I had my first, my son, which is why I gave her my daughter, who she immediately stabbed her hooks into. And I just, I felt guilty again, I felt guilty again. 
when she got sick, not that she was really even my mom at the end, and not that she would ever feel guilty about anything. And I just don't want to put any more stress on my family. I'm not even really sure if they could, could give me that support. And I just, I just feel, I just sometimes feel like it's all ruined. <laughs> and then I realize that I am to blame. Or not that I'm to blame, but I am blamed. And what do you think you feel blamed for? I don't know. Annie really lays it all out in this scene. There's a history of mental illness in her family. Her brother committed suicide at 16, blaming the mother. He left a note claiming that she was trying to put people inside of him, which Annie assumes is part of schizophrenia or something of that nature. Right. Well, though, turns out (laughs) there might be a darker truth at play there. She uses the phrase stabbed her hooks into when talking about Ellen's relationship with Charlie. Pretty graphic. Quite a graphic way to describe it. It's almost as if on some subconscious level, she's aware that something is wrong. Definitely. Already. Yeah. But she can't quite figure it out. She doesn't know for sure. It's almost like one of those feelings in a dream or feelings in the back of your mind. Like she gets it. She knows that there's something there, but she doesn't quite. Right. And her, I mean, she's not the yet. most confident person. You know what I mean? She seems to be questioning a lot of her own thoughts about things all the time. Yeah. Peter gets invited to a party. <laughs> I did love that part of the text message chain ends with bring your dick. <laughs> <laughs> it's like when you're telling me to come over to record. <laughs> Bring that dick. (laughs) Yeah, I can kind of relate to Peter. He's just so oblivious staring at that girl's butt in class. He's like in love with her. It's hard to say if she's really that interested or not. (laughs) Just a total dope. Right. (laughs) But he's smoking weed in his bedroom. He's blowing smoke out of his window. And then the camera pans further away from the window. And then you see breath being blown out from someone in the darkness, but you can't see the person or anything. Right. It lets you know... There's other people around, maybe? That there's a constant surveillance. There's a constant presence at work here. There's always outside forces involved. The tongue clicks just all over the place throughout. (laughs) Yeah. The pace picking up. (laughs) To attend the party and borrow the car, Peter lies that he is going to a school event... And Annie, oblivious, forces Charlie to go with him. It does feel like this would be something you could easily check into for a mom. You know what I mean? A school event? She doesn't seem super engaged with things. No, but she also seems to know that he's lying, too. Because, I mean, she's like, are you going to be drinking? Yeah. And he's like, well, we're too young to get booze. And she's like, well, that's a crock. I just want to know if you're going to be drinking. Right. So it's like she knows something's up, but yeah, she's hell-bent on Charlie going, too, which I think is so weird. I think she's concerned about Charlie. She's worried that Charlie doesn't have any friends, that there's no social interactions going on. 
this movie's two hours and seven minutes. I will say I this. I don't think they had the time to like really drive home the point you know, about what was going on with Charlie beforehand. It's hard to make friends when you're cutting the heads off birds. Yeah, because meanwhile, while this is going on, Charlie's out in the yard performing some ceremony with that bird's head, <laughs> seeing visions of a woman surrounded by flames That's off right. in the distance. Yep. <laughs> you're just like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> this is some life Charlie's leading. But the siblings do go to that party, even though Charlie is reticent to do so. On the way there, we pass a telephone pole with a symbol emblazoned onto it. And if you pay close enough attention, it's the same symbol Ellen was wearing around her neck when they buried her body. Ooh. Not great. (laughs) That's a bad omen. Bad omen with that telephone pole. I enjoy Charlie's observational humor when they get to the party. Because he's he's like, they have chocolate cake, and she's like, yeah, but it's not for everyone. Yeah, I know. I actually have that written down later. (laughs) Once at the party, Peter leaves Charlie unattended. Really, I I get that he's a teenage boy, and teenage boys are distracted by drugs and pretty girls, but it does seem like a crazy move that he's just going to leave his sister unattended at this party. Yeah, it's a bad choice, although, as I've been trying to stress, I do think that this movie secretly is about agency and the lack of control, and you wonder how much power is at work here that we are unaware of at this point. He can't escape fate. It seems like this is all set in motion. It seems like, if you want to take it to that level, the, the cake being there and what's in the cake, like this is all part of it right it's all part of some sort of a a plan charlie unwittingly eats chocolate cake containing walnuts and quickly falls into anaphylactic shock and charlie does remind me of myself at this party (laughs) just not for everyone yeah (laughs) oh gosh the amount of social anxiety at parties as soon as i got to one i was just like all right i'm gonna go outside and smoke a cigarette (laughs) i can't be in here around all these people they rush out of the party so that Peter can drive Charlie to the hospital. Gasping, Charlie leans out of the backseat window for air. And when Peter swerves to avoid a dead deer in the middle of the road, she is violently decapitated by that fucking telephone pole. Absolutely stunning. For several following minutes of the movie, I, I was like, there's no way that this can be real. Yeah. I have the exact same thoughts. I was thinking it was a dream. Yeah. I kept thinking it was a dream up until way past this point. I was thinking, like, this can't be where this is headed. I know. It was so sobering. Like, And I only really remember feeling that way watching The Sopranos. When the Christopher scene happened in Sopranos Uh in the last season, I was, like, so stunned. I could not believe that... That was the way that that character went away. I just never saw that coming. I thought the rest of the episode was so weird after that. And that's kind of the way I felt for this scene. For for a while, I'm just like, I cannot believe this. Right. And this is what we were, or at least I was alluding to oh, earlier. Yeah. This right. was misdirection from the trailer and the marketing that positions Millie Shapiro as a major part of this movie. And yes, the character of Charlie is a major part of this movie, but not in the way that you're expecting. Right. And we go on to realize that all of this stuff that they're referencing in the trailer about death is not 
for the funeral that we've already witnessed. Right, because there's so much more to come that is referencing Charlie that you think is referencing Annie's mother. That's the way it's positioned in the trailer. It opens with her being dead. You think that potentially you're talking about a movie where a family is haunted by a malevolent grandma ghost or something like that. Yeah. That's almost what they're teasing a little bit. And then they throw this into the mix and it's stunning. It's a stunning (laughs) moment in the theater. And there's so much time left in the movie. Ultimately, this accident is not as random as it seems. But God, in that immediate aftermath with Peter sitting in the car when he's looking into the rearview mirror and he's like afraid to look and he keeps like, there's like a tease of if he's going to look and see and he's just sitting there forever. The tension in these moments is palpable. It was I know. I was as freaked out about that as almost anything. And it's like this thing that continues to simmer as we move forward. Yeah, it's horrifying. Yeah. This portion of the story reflects a real-life incident from 2004 in Marietta, Georgia, Oh, in which John Kemper Hutcherson accidentally decapitated his childhood friend and passenger Frankie Brom on a telephone pole after the latter had leaned his head from the vehicle to relieve the symptoms of his inebriation. Good Lord. Hutcherson then drove home with Brahm's headless corpse in the car and fell asleep until a passerby walking with its toddler noticed Brahm's body still in the truck the next morning and notified authorities. Oh, wow. Yes, this is a very pleasant episode. <laughs> Lots of fun. Just uplifting. <laughs> Just people drive around with headless corpses. And just is like, I'm just going to go to bed. Well, in shock, yep. Peter drives home and leaves Charlie's body in the car. Maybe they won't notice. <laughs> Where it eventually is discovered by a horrified Annie the following morning. <laughs> the way they show this is oh, so great, too, because it's rough. It zooms in. On Peter's unsleeping face. Oh, I know. Just laying in bed. Eyes peeled open. And you just overhear this. You overhear Annie going to the car. Just the dread. The normal conversation she's having on her way out with Steve. You're hearing her, like, open the car. And then her reaction to it. Screaming. Just so, like, a guttural reaction. Oh, God. Yes. And then they cut to Charlie's head. On the side of the road, covered in ants. Disgusting. Horrifying. Yes, yeah, so dark. And there's a little montage of Annie's grief where she's just wailing and saying she wants to be dead. She wants to be dead. It's very hard to watch. Hard to watch. Hard to picture coming back from this. I don't know how people do it, man. I don't. No, I- I'm so fragile. <laughs> as it is. If I have like a bad interaction... In traffic, it ruins the next three weeks of my life, you know? (laughs) Yeah, you can't stop thinking about it. Right. I just wouldn't be able to cope. The grieving family is fractured after Charlie's funeral. Peter becomes reclusive and racked with guilt over his sister's death. Annie becomes resentful towards Peter over the incident, and Steve desperately tries to mediate between them. There doesn't become any sort of investigation in these types of scenarios. I mean, we don't really see any of that, but I don't know. It seems like, I mean, he was driving under the influence. Yeah, well. I don't know if there's a blood test or anything, but. Sometimes in certain instances that would have to be pushed by 
the victim, and then in this instance, that would be the family. Right. So yeah, it just depends. It's kind of like Manchester by the Sea. Yeah. <laughs> when they, the police just tell me he's free to go. He's obviously not getting tested right after the incident because he's coming home in shock and going into his room. That's right. Yep. I don't know. I guess it would be up to the family and potentially the police. And if they're not super suspicious, if they think the story just checks out. Who's telling that story? <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> That is one yeah, thing. Yeah, my sister just stuck her head out the window and got decapitated by a telephone pole. I remember waiting for that well, in the theater. Well, she couldn't breathe. I remember waiting for that in the theater, Ugh. the scene where he has to explain it. And they never really show that. It just sort of moves Thankfully, forward in right. time. We see a second word on the walls of the Graham house. It's Zazas, Z-A-Z-A-S. This one's a little harder to figure out. It seems like it's a word that's used as part of a demon evocation spell. <laughs> okay. You know, so pretty normal. I'm really familiar with that topic. It has association with Aleister Crowley in that whole world, witches and demons and conjuring them up. Enough said. I think, <laughs> I think you get it. Yeah. We've already learned about Annie's family history with mental illness when she shared at the support group. So how does Steve fit into this? Well, Steve's a professional. He's a therapist. Oh, boy. His role over the rest of the film will be to try and stabilize. He always... He's kind of the mediator. Wants to remain neutral. Yeah, he mediates between mother and son, but also tries to stay grounded when things start going off the rails. That's right. But it also paints a clearer picture of their marriage and the roles within. An earlier version of the script even had Annie as one of Steve's former patients. And at some point, he makes a comment about not continuing to enable her. Yeah. And I think you're supposed to interpret that, that he's enabled her in a lot of different ways. Well, that's also therapist speak. I think normal people always enable each other in relationships. I think he's just aware that she has mental illness and that's what he's referring to sure and he's not going to allow it to impact the family anymore that's although right. everything with annie turns into its own red herring that's right yeah it does there's a lot of a tease about her role in these things what is going on exactly with her what does she know not know it's a lot of stuff to talk about towards the yeah. end when it all becomes clear the one story she tells about the match it's, well, we'll get to that. Yeah. I mean, it's a huge thing. We'll talk about it. But it just with Steve, I just want to focus on just the Steve element for a second. <laughs> Feels like maybe he, he should have done something a little bit more after that incident. What? Killed her? <laughs> I don't know. It doesn't seem like she got the right amount of help after that. Her sleepwalking problem. The film focuses on building dread. We see a little bit of Peter having meltdowns at school. These meltdowns, these incidents can all be interpreted in different ways once you know the full scope of what's going on. At one point, he's almost recreating what happened with his sister, where his throat seems to be closing up when he's smoking yeah. weed, stuff like that. You get the sense that's kind of like the last hang with that group of friends? Oh, yeah. They're like, you know it, it would be hard to rebuild yourself no. after some of the stuff that goes on with Peter at that's school. That's right, yeah. I don't think that this girl's going to be dating him anytime soon. No. Joan, played by Ann Dowd. That's right, yeah. A woman from the support group subtly forces a friendship onto Annie by approaching her 
outside of one of these places. And yes, it really is the year of Andowed on this podcast. We did Garden <laughs> State. Right. We did that episode of Freaks and Geeks. Yep. She's back again. She's perfect for this role, too. Yeah, because... She's got this disarming quality. Yeah, that's the whole point. They cast very normal-looking people into a lot of these things, which makes it feel like it could happen to you. It could happen anywhere. There's nothing particularly unique about the people you're seeing in right, this movie. Right, yeah. She claims to have lost her son and grandson in a drowning accident and thus has something to relate to with Annie, who has now lost her daughter. She gives Annie her number and seems to be somewhere to turn for a grieving mother, someone to talk to. Annie has started sleeping in the treehouse, just like her daughter had been doing, even though it's freezing. Just seems insane. A couple of the characters, most notably Peter, start hearing ghostly tongue clicking, much like Charlie was doing, just out of the blue. Just the horror. I'd just be like, just get this out of my head. There is a little moment here that some people might not pick up on. The mail has already been delivered to the Graham house, you can see, because it's sticking in the mail slot, and then someone comes along and slides in that seance mailer. Okay, no, I missed that. The Grahams are being led down a path one way or another. Joan is just one of the many options That's at true. play here. Right. They're going to make this happen, so they're going to keep trying. They know that Annie's vulnerable. You might be listening to this, or you might be watching the movie, and you're thinking, well, I would never be into a seance. I would never do this. The point is that they know Annie is vulnerable to this. Yeah, and sort of desperate for something to cling to. And, and I mean, they play it right, because she's she has to be pulled into it. Yeah. Annie's continuing with her miniatures. They are fucked up. <laughs> the they're I biographical. The, She's the, recreating the friggin' car crash or whatever. The well, yeah, scene. we haven't even got to that one. The one in this moment is her and Steve are in bed, and there's like that ghostly looking version of her mother standing in the doorway, and you're Yikes. like, "What the fuck is this?" Right. That's not even a scene we see in the movie. But uh, you assume that it happened. Yeah, but is Don't it you? something that happened when Ellen was alive? And yeah, that's true. I don't know. Out, Unclear. A ghost or what is going on? Yeah, I could buy either one. There's a lot of darkness in this house. And one of the things they do in the movie is shoot it mostly in the dark. Yeah. There is a little bit of light that comes in usually from the outside of the house. But there's so much in the dark where you can kind of see everything, but you're not 100% sure. And sometimes your eyes have to adjust and... It freaks you out because you start searching the corners for fucked up shit, and sometimes it'll be there eventually. <laughs> That's true. Annie goes to see Joan and notices her embroidered welcome mat, and she says, just like my mom used to make, but ultimately dismisses it as yeah. nothing, a coincidence. That seems like it should have been a little bit more of a huh moment. She unloads her grief about Charlie onto Joan, and this is where... She makes the sleepwalking confession that you were alluding to. Yikes. Where back in the day when they were younger, Peter and Charlie shared a room. Annie used to sleepwalk. She found herself in that room, having covered both of her children in paint thinner, holding a match about (laughs) to light it. Which she just sort of refers to as like the sleepwalking incident. (laughs) Not the time I almost (laughs) killed my kids. Yeah, she actually says 
it was the striking of the match that awakened her. So it was like that close to happening. <sighs> and yes, Peter remembers this. After she returns from Jones, it takes a really dark turn with the miniatures. <laughs> Just an unexpectedly dark turn. Yeah. Where she makes one of the incident with her daughter's fucking severed head and you're like, on the ground next to this telephone pole. Who, who is this for? Clearly, Steve allows this because he thinks that it's like therapeutic for her to it's, work through this yeah. stuff. But he's upset because he thinks that Peter's going to see it and he's like, how is he going to react? And her response it's is so, so crazy. Yeah. It's a completely neutral depiction of the accident. <laughs> <laughs> As if Steve's insane yeah. for suggesting otherwise. <laughs> I don't know why Peter would see this and be upset. It's not blaming him. No. <laughs> In one of the more memorable scenes of the whole movie, tensions boil over at a family dinner, and Annie unloads onto Peter about the accident. Oh, yeah. You think these two were holding some stuff back for a while? Yeah. She's like, well, maybe we should have had the police test you. <laughs> you could be in prison, you little shit. <laughs> no, she doesn't even say that. It's yeah. just more about who's to blame. And blaming him for the fact that if he could even acknowledge that he was to blame, yeah. they could move on. But the that, fact that he can't, or I guess it's more the fact that it's just like this unspoken thing. Yeah. Uh, well, clearly he's not processing it. He's almost right. like in denial about it too. So there's nothing for him to acknowledge because it's just so pushed away, I think. But the thing is, she's not cartoonishly villainous in this moment. It's not like a, a no. switch flips and she's like, I fucking hate you, you piece of trash no, it's your it fault it's, feels, it feels real it, it kind of feels like a normal family fight kind you know, of it, i mean it's it's very intense it is intense yeah <laughs> i don't think i've ever had a family fight quite like this no the, the, yours were reserved for girlfriends outside of <laughs> sidelines <laughs> and people yelling from <laughs> out from their windows for us to shut up because it's <laughs> three in the morning <laughs> oh god it's so embarrassing to be me sometimes <laughs> You okay, Mom? What? Is there something on your mind? Is there something on your mind? It just seems like there might be something you want to say. Yeah. Like what? I mean, why would I want to say something so I could watch you sneer at me? Sneer at you? I don't ever sneer at you. Oh, sweetie, you don't have to. You get your point across. Okay, so fine. Then say what you want to say then. Peter. I don't want to say anything. I've tried saying Okay, things. so try again. Release yourself. Oh, release you, you mean? Yeah, fine. Release me. Just say it. Just fucking say it. Don't you swear at me, you little shit. Don't you ever raise your voice at me. I am your mother. Do you understand? All I do is worry and slave and defend you. And all I get back is that fucking face on your face. So full of disdain and resentment and always so annoyed. Well, now your sister is dead. And I know you miss her. And I know it was an accident. And I know you're in pain. And I wish I could take that away for you. I wish I could shield you from the knowledge that you did what you did. But your sister is dead. She is gone forever. And what a waste. If it could have maybe brought us together or something. If you could have just said, I'm sorry, or faced up to what happened. 
Maybe, Tam, we could do something with this, but you can't take responsibility for anything! So now I can't accept. And I can't forgive. Because... Because nobody admits anything they've done! What about you, Mom? She didn't want to go to the party. So why was she there? All right, we're stopping this right now. Zed. I said stop right now. Fine. There's so much pain and resentment and anger and grief. It's a fantastic scene. It takes it to the next level because I would reiterate that even if you were to take all of the supernatural witchy cult shit out of Hereditary and just make it about something fucked up happening and then processing it, this is a powerful, real, emotionally charged scene. Yeah, and it would shake you without any of the other occult background. Yeah, you don't even need that context for this to be upsetting. And it's almost a an indication of how horror works in a way. Because horror oftentimes is a metaphor for things that are real, that are like real things that you worry about. Stress, growing up, whatever. Real problems in your life that get blown up into these fictional things, these fantastical things, these over-the-top bloody violent things or whatever. Right, right. But at the root, there's always some real emotion. Something we can all connect to. And this movie, Hereditary, is almost like deconstructing it backwards, back to the point where this family drama over something so horrific and the grief, being able to deal with it or not deal with it, that's where a lot of the power comes from because yeah the supernatural shit is fucked up and scary but in a way isn't this just as scary to have to deal with something like that yeah for sure something so horrible happens and then dealing with it having to keep living yeah and really trying to be the uh, dad in this <laughs> situation <laughs> just trying to be the middleman here trying to negotiate some sort of peace between these two well even he knows that it's so fucked up that he can't even really say anything one way or the other i mean he obviously he wishes that his wife wasn't saying this to their son but he can't really stop her because She's her right. feelings are real <laughs> yeah i mean well, it's not about her being right it's just it's the way she feels and that is legitimate when there's this much pain at stake yeah and to some degree she's gotta let it out yeah I mean, she can't just keep making miniatures no that ain't working <laughs> annie is surprised to run it into Joan in the parking lot of an art supply store. And this is where Joan gets her hooks into Annie and starts giving her this big spiel about a seance and how she yeah. was able to communicate with her grandson. And there's something about this part that feels 
even more forced of a meetup. You know what I mean? It, it feels like the plan was going off the rails and they kind of had to call an audible here with Joan. No, I think this is this is real. This okay. was this was the next step. I, running up to her at the art supply store or whatever. Well, they want to make it feel like a coincidence. Yeah. They okay. don't want it to come off. It's sort of like Inception. She has right. to believe that it's organic. Yeah. Like, I, oh, here's this person that I spent some time with. True. I guess I would have thought they would have wanted to figure out a way that Annie's going to come back to Joan. Yeah, they did. And this is it. Because she <laughs> yeah. does come back. To right. House well, yes. <laughs> She's basically saying, I was a skeptic. I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. She's taking the position as if Annie's skepticism matches her own initial skepticism. That's right. I was just like you, and then this happened to me. I love that there were, based on her story, so many uh, skeptics willing to go to this medium. Yeah, neurologists yeah. or whatever she said. <laughs> just enough details to make it seem real. That's what you need. That's right. So maybe against her better judgment, Annie does agree to come back over to Jones. And Joan teaches Annie to perform a seance in order to communicate with Charlie. She does this by doing a seance to communicate with her grandson, Louis. And it is an emotionally charged scene, I will say. Nice mood setter. I'm going to put my hand on the glass, but I'm not going to add pressure. You do the same. Louis. Louis, are you here? It's Grandma. Louis, if you are here with us, please just try and slide the glass. Louis, if you're here. <gasps> Hi, Louie. <laughs> Hi, Louie. How did you do that? Louie, I'm going to ask you some questions. Okay, sweetie? If the answer is yes, slide the glass to the right. If it's no, slide it the other way, to the left. Do you understand? Louie, are you okay? Are you in pain? No! Oh it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Louis, I brought your chalkboard. Remember your chalkboard? Can you write something? Oh, my God. 
I love you, sweetheart. I'm sorry, can we stop? What? I'm sorry, please. I... Louis, <clears throat> we're gonna stop for a second, but I'll be right back. <clears throat> It introduces the idea of a connective item, some sort of a transference piece that connects the spirit to the person that's doing the seance. For Lewis, it's supposedly this chalkboard. And so there's a moment where the seance is going on and then the chalk writes on the chalkboard by itself. This is actually a practical effect. They put magnets in the chalk and pulled from the other side to produce the effect of the chalk writing on its own. So that's all really happening. It's not anything in post. Right. Ari Aster had a strong preference for practical effects as opposed to things being added in post-production, and so they used practical effects wherever possible. Yep, always a fan. In fact, a lot of the people working on the film had to learn how to do things because nowadays there is such a reliance on cgi that's why so if he wants a candle to light on its own when a guy comes onto the scene making movies this way somebody we immediately get into whenever i know ari aster is making a movie i'm interested well his next thing is like a four-hour movie with (laughs) joaquin phoenix called disappointment boulevard or something like that That sounds like my life (laughs) sounds like a green day b-side from <laughs> jesus of suburbia or whatever the fuck <laughs> american idiot joan tells annie that if she's going to try it on her own she has to make sure everyone in her house is present and she specifically mentions peter she says even peter you have to make sure she, he's there everyone has to be there these are the things that would go right by you i think yeah and on initial viewing but say. it all is important on the way home driving in the car there's one of the best jump scares in the whole movie when Annie's by herself and she's just driving along and then oh, in the yeah, back seat. Right. She's like, what? <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> Annie has a nightmare and it's pretty dark. Yes, it is. And yet at the same time, I think it also sheds some light on some things when you peel back some layers and take a closer look. This is kind of like what my dreams are like. Just <laughs> so real up. and so horrible. Mine are horrible, but for different ways. It's usually like ex-girlfriends or people I haven't talked to or seen in years and like just having to deal with it. Run into you and want to make small talk. Yeah. That's like your nightmare. <laughs> like, I wake up like heavy breathing, like panicking, <laughs> falling out of bed, yeah. <laughs> screaming. Right. Meanwhile, if I had a nightmare like what Annie has, I would like yeah. wake up relieved. Mine are, <laughs> mine are clearly not this dark, but I do. I feel like almost all of my dreams are just like seated in anxiety (laughs) it opens with some ants everywhere and ants are definitely a callback to charlie's head being covered in ants on the side of the road that's right yes disgusting there's a nice little fake out because she ends up in peter's room and then it's like she wakes up so it's almost like a dream within a dream because peter's like you're sleepwalking you're sleepwalking what's going on but who is the dreamer and you think that she's awake now yes So that throws you off the scent as to what's coming next. Except, of course, then they end up both doused in paint thinner and they're screaming at each other. (laughs) Oh, no. And she blurts out, I never wanted to be your mother. It's like really fucked up, you think. And she actually specifically says the phrase, she pressured me because she wanted to have an abortion. That's right. And she. Meaning Graham. 
Yeah. And Annie confesses that she didn't feel like a mother and she wanted to have a miscarriage. Yeah, that, and that's Peter's dark. freaking out and being like, why did you want to kill <laughs> me? You wanted to kill me. And she's like, no, I wanted to save you, is what she says. Oh, that's right. Yeah. But it, it, it is messed up. Can't get an abortion. So then trying every way she can think of to have a miscarriage, that's quite a road of thoughts to go down. When she says, I was trying to save you, you're so distracted by the other crazy shit that's being said and the tense moment of the situation that's building here that you're probably not processing exactly what she's saying and what that means because you don't know the full picture yet. You don't know what's going on. So by the time you start to get clued in, you might have forgotten these little details right. that she's saying, I wanted to save you. So what is she talking about? We'll get to it. Yes, we will. <laughs> We're on our way. She lights them both on fire and then she wakes up and this spurs her on. It's like, well, I guess they'll use this as all the motivation I need to do this. So when she wakes up in the middle of the night, Annie convinces her family to attempt a seance to contact Charlie. This is where she's just like really in this manic state. Yeah. And the movie doesn't beat you over the head with it. She's a grieving mother. She is upset beyond all measure. And that's why she's acting like this. She's sort of seeing like this as like incoherent almost. She's seeing this as like a way to reach out to her deceased daughter that she can't cope with the fact that she's gone. Again, sometimes the horror is what's based in reality. Almost always in my case. The idea of losing a child is as horrific as anything else in this movie. Definitely. They begin to perform the seance, even though Stephen and more casual Peter aren't participants. super into it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> They're almost humoring her at a certain point. Like, okay, we just want to go back to bed. It's 1.45 in the morning. Objects move and break, and then Peter is petrified when Annie begins speaking in Charlie's frightened voice. Yeah, this feels like it didn't go quite as planned. Yeah, it's like a whole other level beyond what Joan was showing her. Right. It's like one of those things in any walk of life when you get these instructions and the person's walking you through it, and it seems like easy and normal, and you're able to do it when the person's there with you. And then as soon as you're on your own, something changes, <laughs> and you're all like, what shit? is going on? <laughs> this isn't how it happens. Right. <laughs> Charlie, it's Mommy. And Daddy and Peter. Charlie, if you're in this room with us, I'm going to have us all touch the glass. Don't add pressure. Now, if you're in here, Charlie, I want you to move the glass for us. Even if it's just a tiny bit, even oh, if Jesus it's just the tiniest Christ little movement, okay, Charlie? Okay. What the hell? What? You don't feel that? Oh, I feel what? Like, you don't feel the air flexing? Charlie, that was so good. Okay. Now, Charlie, what I'd like for you to do is I'd like for you to show them what you did earlier. Can you show them what you just did for me before? Mom. Look, she's gonna do it. That's enough. What? No, 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 no. Listen, when I did this earlier, this manifested on the page. I saw it. Right, so Mom, I saw what it. is it? It's Charlie. 
Did you find Charlie? Did you want to draw some more? You can keep going. Stop it! Stop it! We need to keep our fingers touching. You are scaring me! No, I am not! Peter, Peter, listen! Stop it! There is no need to be scared. This is your sister! Charlie? What's wrong? Hello? Mom? 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 I don't like this. Dad, I don't like this. What's happening? Please stop. Please, please. What's going stop on? This. Mom! Please, 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 please stop. What's Dad, happening? Why stop, is everyone please, scared? Stop. Why are you scaring me? Make it stop! Make it fucking stop! Make it stop! It is freaky when she's talking in Charlie's voice and almost the alarm in Charlie's voice of like, where am I? Where's mom? Right, right. I'm scared. What's going on? It's disturbing to For think sure. that this is your dead sister and then she's saying those things. Annie only stops when Steve douses her with water. <laughs> when in doubt, just throw water at somebody. I just wrote here, manic mom is frightening enough. Absolutely. It's disturbing enough to see your mom acting like this and buying into something that seems insane. Yeah. You would think that there's some sidebar conversations not including mom after this. <laughs> yeah. Like, what are we going to do with this we woman? We're going to put her in a hospital. Yeah. It's almost like Joan cornered her in that parking lot to like sign her up for like an MLM, like a multi-level marketing thing. Oh, no. Like, yeah. You're going to sell these energy drinks, That's and right. then you're going to get five people to work for you, and then you're going to get a piece of their... <laughs> <laughs> Except it was like all a seance, and now she's bringing oh, it into their house, and right. it's like, you're insane. Like you're you're brainwashed now. Mom, <laughs> how could you fall for this? <laughs> Just like angrily embarrassed. Yeah, <laughs> I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed of you. She's like, what are you talking about? Didn't you see that candle go out? <laughs> We're gonna make so much money. We're gonna make so much money. We can work from home. We all have to. <laughs> it's just like talking so fast. I have to say, I don't have a lot of complaints about the movie, but. One thing that I'm not 100% sold on is Peter's crying throughout the movie. It gets a little over the top for me. Okay, that never bothered me, but I wasn't really paying too much attention to it. Okay. All right. Just never really sat right with me. Okay. (laughs) Finally, the last words scratched into the walls of the house are shown. Liftoch pandemonium. Liftoch is Hebrew for open. Pandemonium can mean chaos, which is its normal meaning, or it could represent the capital of hell, as in Paradise Lost by John Milton. So there you go. Sounds like a lively capital. Who carved these things into the walls, I wonder? Do you have a thought? Well, it could have been Ellen, or it could have been others. (laughs) 
there do seem to be a, a decent amount of people with interest in the house. Yeah, you do have to wonder how oblivious the Grams are. They don't seem to be that like aware of all these people that are lurking around the yeah, property. They're always all times. around yeah. and nude. <laughs> <laughs> in the aftermath of the seance, Peter is plagued by supernatural forces. The first time he sees his own reflection at school and it's not matching up with what is on his face. The reflection is sort of evilly grinning back at him. Yeah, like this sinister look. He starts seeing the moving light. There's this shimmering moving light that will recur throughout the movie. This will be significant and means something's happening. Yep. But Peter first starts to notice it at school, and he starts to hear the tongue clicks. And if you can't guess, the the thing that's happening is not good. (laughs) I do think that the tongue clicking thing is disturbing even in school oh yeah because usually even in these movies when fucked up shit like this is going on it's usually private you at least can hide your shame (laughs) of being haunted (laughs) (laughs) but what hereditary asks is what if you had to do this in front of your peers (laughs) and just made a fool of yourself i know it is embarrassing Annie freaks out and destroys all of her miniatures right around the time that Steve is noticing a strange smell in the house. Uh huh. Finally, Annie suspects something is really wrong. It's taken her a while, but in the aftermath of that seance, I think at first she was into it still. Yeah. And believed that she was communicating with her daughter. But she was like, I don't think that went exactly how it was supposed to go or how I envisioned it going. She may be starting to think that Charlie's spirit or whatever the fuck it is has become malevolent when she sees Charlie's old sketchbook drawing images that appear to threaten Peter, and yes, they are drawing them on their own. She throws the book into the fireplace, but her clothes start to burn along with the book. Clearly, this book is now protected by some spell that yeah, we're unaware like a of. voodoo doll effect. Panicked, Annie retrieves the book and stamps out the flames, which in turn ex- extinguishes the fire on her sleeve. Although I was like trying to look at the sleeve, I'm like, no fire damage from the. It didn't look like that. That superficial ruin? burns. <laughs> Peter sees Charlie in the corner of his room, and then her head falls off, but it like turns into a basketball yeah. or something. It's still fucked up though, because it's it like, is. well, how did that ball move right. on its own? No, I know it's creepy. And then those arms reach from the the headboard of his bed and like start pulling at his head as yep. if they're trying to rip his head off. There's a lot of like decapitation theme throughout this movie. That's true. No one has a head for very long. <laughs> <laughs> the one thing that they do very effectively is that they keep you on the edge of your seat about Annie at all times. Yeah, and if she's actually evil. Annie feels like sometimes she's doing these things or maybe she's schizophrenic and she doesn't realize, or they've introduced the idea of her doing the stuff while she's sleepwalking. And sometimes she does speak in a guilty tone. Yeah. What do you mean? I just came in here. They definitely- I wasn't in here. What are you talking about? Keep you guessing about what's going on with her. Annie heads back to Joan's apartment, but there is no answer. The viewer, but not Annie, has a quick look inside Joan's apartment. And it's pretty damn incriminating. (laughs) Yeah, I'd say so. She gives up pretty quick on Joan's apartment. 
It doesn't seem like Joan has left permanently. There's candles burning inside. Well, I was even wondering if she is supposed to be there, but she's just not answering the door. It is possible I, I mean, they don't show her. If she hears that it's Annie, it's like, eh, you know what? I don't think I can let her in right now. On the table in her room, there's that triangle with Peter's face on a picture in the middle. Yeah. I got to tell you, if I was Peter, I'd be pretty happy not to see that picture. Well, he does see it later. I know. It's a bummer. <laughs> Joan shows up at Peter's school, although it seems like only he is aware of her and can hear her because he's sitting outside eating lunch or something and she's across the street. Seemingly screaming, but yeah, to your Just point. no chill right. from Joan. <laughs> Making a huge scene. Peter, I expel you. Xantony. Dagnony. A yeah. paragon. Really? Peter. Well, get out. Get out. <laughs> Peter. <laughs> He's just like, what? <laughs> He's looking around like, I can't have any more incidents. People are going to not like me. <laughs> yeah, I'm already sitting at a table by myself, if you haven't noticed, older woman screaming at me. Meanwhile, Annie rushes back home to look through her mother's belongings once again. After what happened with ghost grandma the first time i don't know that i would ever really be comfortable digging around in her stuff no this would be a part of the house that i would just shut down you know board it up there's a book called invocations a highlighted passage says under a picture of king paimon god of mischief when successfully invoked king paimon will possess the most vulnerable host only when the ritual is complete will king paimon be locked into his ordained host. Once locked in, a new ritual is required to unlock the possession. Then there's a further underlined passage that says, King Paimon is a male, thus covetous of a male human body. Plus a little picture with someone sitting atop what seems to be a pile of gold coins or something. Riches to the conjurer. Annie also discovers a photo album with many pictures linking her mother to Joan. I gotta tell you, these devil worshippers seem like a fun bunch. In these pictures, it seems like they have a lot of good times. A lot of smiles. Yeah. (laughs) There is also an implication of either riches being bestowed upon Annie's mother. It seems like they're throwing gold coins on her. She's also wearing what seems to be a wedding dress at one point. But it is all clear evidence of a cult that potentially Ellen was the leader of. Certainly a prominent figure, anyway. There's a lot of darkness <laughs> in this family. And according to Annie, she was unaware. We don't But again, you do get know. the sense that there's some stuff that's been blocked out. Because there's things that have happened, and it's like, why would Annie have gone along with these things? She at least suspected something was up, even if she didn't know well, the well, specifics. Right. I mean, what was the whole like protect Peter thing? Well, yeah, we don't know. Right. Ellen had been attempting to conjure payment in one of her male family members all along so i'm just going to explain some of this stuff now rather than wait till the end to to make things a little easier it explains annie's brother and potentially father as well who you may remember starved himself to death and was also schizophrenic Uh uh-huh we're only hearing that from annie's perspective as to what happened it could very well be a suicide or some sort of a traumatic mental reaction to something that happened that's right that we don't know about imagine like getting married to someone procreating with them and then finding out that that person 
wants a demon to take over your body. <laughs> well, let me know how that works out for you. Yeah. <laughs> Ellen was eventually forced to conjure up payment into Charlie when all of the other attempts failed. As you remember, she was kept away from Peter. That's what I mean. That's why I just feel like Annie has to know something if she was going out of her way to protect Peter. Charlie's death and the seance have opened up the gateways for Peter's possession. Charlie was just a temporary host, a temporary solution. Peter was the target all along. I know I sound like a broken record, but again, these are things that you're probably not going to realize the first time you see the movie. Uh, no. As Steve is being sent pictures of Ellen's desecrated gravesite, which reveals a full-on grave robbery, Annie is making a gruesome discovery up in the attic. Yeah, and this is one of the parts where I expected something to happen just on what I know of horror movies, and that is not what happens. It's mom's rotting corpse Yeah, up in the attic. <laughs> and she's been decapitated too, just like her granddaughter Charlie. While that's happening... Peter is gripped by an unseen force in class and slams his head on his desk, breaking his nose. Making a huge scene. (laughs) Yeah, people were just under their breath like, what an asshole. (laughs) Yeah, what is this guy doing? (laughs) It's going to be pretty hard to repair your popularity after doing something like this. Yeah, you're going to have to go to a different school. Steve arrives home with an unconscious Peter as Annie's freaking out. She makes him look in the attic, and he does see the body. Yeah, that's that's it. I totally thought he was going to go up in the attic and the body would be gone. You know what I mean? In classic, like, I know what you did last summer style, when they go check the trunk, <laughs> the body's gone. <laughs> There's just crabs yeah. or something. But no, the body there. And it's kind of like, this is now Steven has like this kind of crazy visceral reaction to it. Yeah, the body is disgusting. It's black He's just and like, rotting. what the fuck? <laughs> There's bugs buzzing around everywhere in the attic. I know that they did plant the seed a little bit with him commenting on the smell earlier, but it just seems like it would have been bad enough to really investigate earlier. I think so, yeah. It seems like it would be pretty potent. Annie tries to explain what's happening to show him her discoveries, the book linking Joan and Ellen, but remember, Steve has never met Joan. He doesn't know really what she's talking about. Yeah, as far as he knows, she's just going to the movies when she leaves the house. Except he no longer believes that because he is now convinced that Annie is the one doing this. That's the only logical explanation in his mind. Who else put the goddamn corpse in the attic? But by the way, this is like quite an extensive feat to dig up that grave, decapitate her mom's body, drag her. Yeah, I mean she would be beyond saving probably that's the thing insanity right i think yeah he's making quite a this would be like an electric shock (laughs) situation i think yeah but that's sort of how it works though because that's the only logical explanation in his mind right right i know but that's where you go to how dark is that explanation it's just like good lord (laughs) he's having none of it he accuses her of digging up her own mother and he begs Steve to burn the notebook to end Peter's possession because she's convinced this will put a stop to things. She thinks that this notebook is the thing that's connecting the spiritual. And she's so just like over explaining it. He's like so stone faced, stoic, no emotional reactions from him. Just kind of defeated about the whole thing, too. Yeah. 
He's not believing anything other than his wife is insane. So Annie seizes the book and throws it into the fireplace herself. But as it burns, Steve erupts into flames. Just completely engulfed. Instead of Annie. That was one of the more iconic shots from the trailer. Yeah. Where you're just like, what the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) I remember there was a little snafu in Australia where they were showing the hereditary trailer before the film Peter Rabbit. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. There were a lot of traumatized kids. I'd say so. (laughs) Yeah. Oof. I often wonder if that's sort of like a fight club thing where people are sabotaging that on purpose to be assholes to to fuck stuff up. (laughs) As she looks on in horror, a shimmering light enters her body as her husband burns, signaling she has been possessed by payment. So that's what the shimmering light is, in case you were wondering. That's the possession, the signifier. Yeah, you wonder what payment's whole scheme is. <laughs> I guess it's like, well, at this point, I got to possess this woman because she just saw something insane happen. There's this very specific reason as to why these events are happening in this order and what they're trying to accomplish here. Because you could interpret what happened in the classroom earlier with Peter a certain way. And this is all like a response to that now. I thought it was cool hearing an interview with Tony Collette where they were talking about this scene and how she didn't really have any preparation for it. They were just like standing her across from someone who's on fire, obviously like a stunt person. And there was no real explanation of what she was supposed to do. It was just like, just react. Okay. React as if someone's burning. And then now payment enters you. And then there's that moment. It's very, quick very subtle and her face just sort of drops down yeah as if like it's ending and then you just know that she's changed now there's an exterior shot of the home flashing from day to night and if you look closely when it flashes to dark you can see the nude cult members hidden around the property i thought that that was very crystal clear in the theater on the big screen it's definitely harder on a tv screen yeah it's it's cool Going through and reading different articles about the movie now, ones that have accumulated over the last three or so years, and how people's theatrical experiences were very different. I think there's one big scare coming up that a lot of people miss. I think the ghost grandma one is pretty clear. I think everyone saw that. Yes. But the nude people, I think a lot of people miss that. There's definitely ones that people just didn't see. There's a lot of like quick flash type okay. things yeah. hidden in the movie. Peter awakens. It's dark, but there's light coming from the treehouse. And this is the moment that haunted me. Oh, I know. I wasn't even sure the first time that we saw this what I was even seeing. I didn't really even know, I guess, in that moment. I think it becomes clearer later. But in that moment, I wasn't even sure who this was. But it's weird, too, because when I was thinking back on Hereditary and it had been a couple years since watching it, I imagined this scene earlier in the movie for some reason. Okay. And I thought it was the grandma. I thought there was something with the grandma on the ceiling. What we're talking about is when (laughs) Peter wakes up in the darkness of his room up in the corner in the ceiling, Annie is there up in the corner like a spider. Just like leering. 
Yeah, and you, it's hard to even make her out. And I th- I do think people missed it in the theater. And this is I remember being disturbed by it. This is the scene that I was talking about when if you did have a good audience, a packed crowd, and like different people were noticing gasps. her. Yeah, the gasps were like yeah. spread out as different people were seeing her. When Peter turns to look, she floats out, like almost oh, swims know. through the air yeah. undetected, so he doesn't see her up there. Yeah, my memory was completely different. I definitely remembered a scene that was freaky because it was like, oh shit, there's somebody like on the ceiling, right? Like a ghost or something. But like, I couldn't remember when it happened. I actually thought it happened with Charlie when Charlie was still alive. So I was thinking, oh, it must be the grandma's ghost again. Well, they, they do that thing after this, which always, oh, such a hard watch for me in the theater when it's just such a long building suspense moment where he can't see her and she's yeah. in the back corner. Oh. Peter makes his way downstairs completely in the dark about what's been going on, has no idea what's happening. All he remembers, I guess, is smashing his face at school, if he even remembers that. Yeah. And then he wakes up in his own bed. He doesn't know what's going on. It's dark out. No lights are on in the house. As he moves downstairs, it's almost in complete and total darkness. And then he finds his father's charred corpse next to the fireplace. Yeah, sort of underselling it, actually. Well, yeah, he's definitely moving closer to what they need him to be. That's right, yeah. A possessed Annie watches on while perched on the ceiling in the corner of the living room. And as you said, the audience can see her. He doesn't know she's there. It It is building tension. Oh, it feels like an eternity. Then there's just a random nude man partially visible in the doorway, which is actually very creepy. Yeah, I'd say so. It's like, who the fuck is this guy now? Just there. (laughs) Turns out their house is actually filled with nude people just spilling out everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) And folks, these are not attractive nude people. Oh, hold on. No body (laughs) shame. This is not a body shaming podcast. (laughs) I'm not body shaming anyone. I just, come on. (laughs) A spade is a spade. Annie then drops down and chases her son up into the attic. It's this frantic, wild moment where you're building up, you're building up, and then all of a sudden she's pouncing and chasing him. It's very scary. Oof. She trips and falls, and I, I was looking at clips on YouTube yesterday, and someone made the comment <laughs> about Annie not being able to catch her son. She never had the makings of a varsity athlete. <laughs> <laughs> Little Sopranos reference in case people didn't know. He runs up into the attic, leaving her on the outside, and then she's floating against the ceiling, using her head to bang on the attic's trap door just so fast and frantically. I know. Just CTE. Disturbing. (laughs) Completely insane. Of course, we already know that Peter's locked himself into a room of total fucking madness because we know what's (laughs) been going on up there. There are candles burning everywhere, flies buzzing. If you look closely, Peter doesn't notice them at first, but there are nude people hiding in the shadows in various places. He sees the outline of where his grandmother was, and there's a picture of himself with the eyes like stabbed through or something. I know, not very inspiring. And he just has no clue of what's going on. Obviously, he knows his life has been fucked up, especially since his sister died. He remembers the seance, clearly. But aside from that weird moment where he was panicking and, and maybe some bad dreams, 
I mean, he's oblivious to any of this Absolutely. witchcraft that's been going on. He doesn't know what this stuff is. It's just all of a sudden thrust upon him. It doesn't feel like his life has taken a turn for the better. I'd say that. <laughs> his mother is suddenly in the attic with him, levitating while she beheads herself with a piano wire, and it is disgusting. Yeah, this was uh, this was really, for me, where the movie went to a whole new level, which was kind of shocking that it could do that at this point. I was stunned that this was happening it starts off slow then picks up pace but still takes so long to get that head cut off plus you're like we've known tony collette as a person through most of this movie she's been possessed for like five minutes and now she's cutting her head off yeah there is a part of you where you're thinking okay well if annie is not doing this herself and she's not really the driving force after all and that all is a red herring then she's the main character then and now it's very casual that she's floating in the air, yep. sawing through her neck. It's going to be hard for her to be a out. main character with no head. Nude people appear to Peter, and he breaks with reality and just jumps out of the attic window to escape. Yeah. This feels like it was almost a dangerous wrinkle in their plan. I think they were okay with it. Okay. I think they felt like as long as he didn't completely die i know but that seemed like a possibility from this height if he went head first yeah i guess they just needed to make sure that he wasn't completely dead right right at the moment that it needed to happen the way they do this is very effective too because we can hear annie's head hit the floor after he's oh i know just a thud (laughs) the same light that entered annie's body then enters peter as annie's headless corpse levitates out of the house and into Charlie's treehouse. <laughs> You're just like, oh, there's a headless corpse flying through the yard. That was once our main character. <laughs> yeah, the uh, vacuum cleaner salesman was like driving up to the house and was like, do, 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 and then sees this headless corpse floating. Slams in reverse. <laughs> just like <laughs> turning the car around. <laughs> really dedicated vacuum salesman at like one in the morning showing up. <laughs> Peter, now displaying Charlie's mannerisms, including the tongue click, follows his mother's body into the treehouse. Joan, other nude cult members, the headless corpses of his mother and grandmother all bow to him. I was a little bit like Anne Dowd, not committed to the role. You know, (laughs) one of the only clothed people in the treehouse. In all fairness, they are like crouched down. Yeah. Bowing. Yeah, their butts are up in the air, but you don't really see anything. True. She gets up and walks around. It would have been a little bit bigger of a commitment, I think. (laughs) And they're like, well, we wanted a name. She wasn't ready to go there. We wanted a real actress in this part. It couldn't just be someone willing to do the nudity. Charlie's crowned, severed head rests atop a mannequin. And it feels almost reminiscent of that guy with the arrows in him. And carry that statue. Oh, yeah. Or other things like that. It's almost like a blasphemous religious thing. Right. Where Charlie's severed head with the crown, it definitely conjures up the idea of like Jesus or things like that. Well, the score almost changes to like this kind of religious but joyous music. Yeah. From what I was reading, Paymon is actually like a pretty chill dude. Oh, he's not bad. Not bad. No. (laughs) He's a jokester. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know why Ari Aster picked this particular demon. I don't know. Much like The Exorcist, this is stuff that's steeped in 
I want to say real, but you know what I mean? Like yeah, it yeah. exists outside right. of this movie. It's not invented for yeah, this. Yeah. And I don't know that Paymon really has this evil reputation. I don't know. I could be completely wrong about that, but I was yeah. reading some things. I would they... say um, tweet the show, but I really hope you don't know the answer to that. <laughs> yeah, hopefully no one knows. Right. Joan removes the crown and places it upon Peter, whom she addresses as Charlie. She also addresses him as Paymon, whom she swears an oath to and declares that he is now free to rule over them. Charlie, you're all right now. You are Paimon, one of the eight kings of hell. We have looked to the northwest and called you in. We've corrected your first female body and give you now this healthy male host. We reject the Trinity and pray devoutly to you, great Payman. Give us your knowledge of all secret things. Bring us honor, wealth, and good familiars. Bind all men to our will as we have bound ourselves for now and ever to yours. And that's the end of the movie, basically. Not a lot to say. Hail Payman. It's very reminiscent of the end of Rosemary's Baby. I gotta tell you, he doesn't seem very grateful. (laughs) Not a lot to say. Well, he's taken on the personality of Charlie, which was like never talking, That's right, yes. And I guess they they didn't want to go to the well of making Charlie have, or making Peter have Charlie's voice. Yeah. The cake's not for everyone. So let's get into this. Let's really try to break it all down. Oh, there's more. Oh, that was just the preamble. Okay. We're starting Starting the real episode now. Yeah. (laughs) If you have any questions, I'll try to figure it out. Although I think we, over the course of that, covered a lot of it. But there's some more fucked up shit that I think is harder to even realize until you really think about what's going on and try to pick out different things and okay go ahead let me know payman needed a soulless body to use as a vessel but i don't think the body could be straight up dead so yes you're right if he actually died upon impact on the ground that would be a disaster i know they would be like we have to start over again the body also needed to be male why are they all so specific about this family it's hereditary. Yeah. They're queen. I know. They come from Queen Lee. Yep. There's a framed picture in the treehouse of the grandmother that says Queen Lee, which right. is also its own fucked up thing we're going to get to in a minute. She was the leader of the cult. She was the one doing the conjuring. Yes. 
of this demon. So that's why it needed to be a male relative of hers. Right. The second classroom scene when Peter bangs his face against the desk was the first attempt to take hold by Payman. You okay. saw the shimmering light yep. go into the room, but he wasn't weak enough. He wasn't vulnerable enough yet. So that's why Joan shows up with those commands at one point. That actually happens before, but that's all part of the same idea. Right, right. They're trying to force Peter out. Yeah, I was getting that. The reason why possessed Annie is chasing him around but not actually killing him or doing anything really to him is because she's almost scaring him into guiding him where they need him to go. Right. They need him to see that makes sense. his yes. burned father. After what happened to his sister, all this crazy shit's happened. His life is like falling apart, and then he sees his father burned to death. His mother's chasing him throughout the house. And then what does she do when she confronts him is cut off her own head in yeah. front of him. Kind this of a g- weird offensive tactic. Will. Yeah, they're trying to break his will, destroy him internally so that they can push him out. He needed to see all of those last horrors to be weak enough for payment to take hold. Yeah, their plan worked. Ari Aster said he wanted to make a conspiracy film without exposition so that the audience is just as much in the dark as the Graham family, which is basically what happens. We don't know what's happening just as the characters don't know what's happening. Correct. And then once you reach the end, you can start to work your way backwards and piece it together. But until you reach that conclusion, there's really no way to know what the fuck is going on. I would agree with that. Which I do think contributes to the low cinema score. I don't think that people like that style of not knowing what's happening. I don't know. That is 100% up my alley. As I said, Payman is real in the sense that he is not invented for this movie. I still think like it's not that hard to get the main beats, though. It's more the layers that might take a little bit more time getting to. Yeah, I don't know. I don't really know how to explain it. People don't react to a certain pace and certain style, I guess. I don't really know. It wasn't an isolated incident. It definitely yeah, was divisive. That's right. One of the depressing aspects of the film, once you start to realize what was going on, is understanding that Charlie, as we knew her, was never really Charlie. I know. That is strange to look back on. Annie's revelations at the support group prove that Ellen had brought payment into Charlie since birth. This is something that, according to Astor himself, who, unlike some directors, seemed very willing to just answer all kinds of questions about this. (laughs) Here's what this means. Charlie was a vessel for payment from the moment she was born. The cult was just waiting for the right opportunity to make the transfer to Peter's body. Because, as we've alluded to, Uh she didn't have access to Peter. We'll come back to that in a minute. Annie's brother was the first attempt, but Steve was a no-go because Steve was not related because this is hereditary. hereditary. It's got to come from Ellen's blood line. As we've covered, Charlie's death was not really an accident. The cult had significant influence and could bend things to happen the way that they would want them to. Yeah, if only Peter had known that. Payman's symbol recurs throughout the film. It's worn on the necklaces. It was on the telephone pole. It was also carved in blood, maybe, or in something above where Ellen's body was kept in the attic. It shows up all over the place. I love that when 
Annie goes to Jones and she's like, oh, my mom made welcome mats just like this. You would think she'd be like, oh, no, my mom made welcome mats exactly like this. Yeah. <laughs> These are the ones she made for her friends. Well, it's sort of like how Steve yeah. is willing to believe the worst about Annie rather than come up with any other reason because right, it's right. the most likely in his mind. In her mind, it's most likely a coincidence. Even if you're watching a horror movie and you're, as an audience member, are going, well, how could you just buy into this coincidence? If it happened to you in real life, I think your mind reverts to what you think is the most likely, which is, this is just a coincidence. Yes. How would she know my mother? That doesn't even make sense. Right, right, true. Because why would she think there's some big conspiracy going exactly. on? Exactly, yeah, that's a fair point. <laughs> Perhaps the most fucked up thing, though, is the reference to Ellen as being Queen Lee and those pictures where she's wearing a wedding dress. The idea is that she's married to Payman. Payman was in the body of her granddaughter, whom she breastfed. <laughs> yeah, that is dark. She was married to her own granddaughter, in a sense. Because if you were to take Aster's word for it, Charlie was never really Charlie from birth. So that means the body that came out of Annie, her daughter, was married to the grandmother. Yeah, that is strange. Who was hosting a demon king. So when do you think grandma started down this path? Was she ever really in love with her first husband? I'm going to say in the 1930s. Yeah. No, I don't know. You could interpret this that she is gone rogue, that that's why her family was so fucked up, that they weren't on board for this, that her husband was not a part of it either, and that perhaps his death, just as much as their son's death, had something to do with it. Which brings us to our next point. Annie, is she innocent? It seems like it, but questions remain about her subconscious and... Yeah, and her knowledge. What she knows, what she used to there's know. There's still going to be some question around, she knew she had to protect Peter. Why? Right. Is that just something working on a subconscious level? Yeah. The movie does sort of want you to believe that the falling out between Ellen and Annie was unrelated to this, but is it, though? Right. Is it maybe only in Annie's mind unrelated to this? Because she doesn't know, but it probably is related. She doesn't know the full truth. And I guess whatever she does know, consciously or subconsciously, it's obviously a surprise to her that Charlie would be at risk. Because she doesn't offer that same protection. Yes. I think that under the surface, there is a battle between Annie and her mother, and her protective instincts kick in. But she's unable to control it because the whole theme of the film is inevitability and this is going to happen one way or another their lives are being controlled by these outside forces ellen her own mother is the puppet master who seems to believe that the reward that they will be given will exceed whatever sacrifice they're going to have to make obviously she's dead and she has her head removed in death but you could be talking about the spiritual realm at this point. I don't really yeah. know what they're thinking, where this reward is going to happen. I do have to wonder who took her head. The cult members. Okay. That is sort of a an easy way out, but that is well, I know the answer that, to I most of the questions that, I would be Googling. But it's like, I wonder why she had to be headless. Well, the theme of decapitation is something that Aster brought on his own that's not really anything tied in with payment or these ceremonies or spells or any of this shit 
and his motivation for doing so is something that he has decided not to reveal. I guess okay. he just wanted to to do that, and it becomes a theme. Charlie's decapitated, so then they decapitate the corpse of Ellen to reflect that, and then Annie yes. cuts her own head off. Pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really uplifting stuff. Yeah, so what I was saying was I was Googling a lot of questions about different things, the definitions of those words, trying to figure out what the words meant and those kind of things. But one of the common answers to my questions was, oh, it was the members of the cult. (laughs) Who removed the body from the cemetery and put it in the attic? It was the cult. Who cut the head off? It was the cult. At the end of the film, when Peter locks himself in the attic, how does Annie get into the attic? Well, there's all those nude people everywhere in the house. Yes. Including in the attic with him. Imagine the uh, home security footage. Now, here's a question unrelated to the cult. Why do they have an attic with a lock that you can lock from the inside? What scenario would you need to lock the attic from the inside? Yeah, hopefully you'd never want to find yourself in that situation. Is it a little bit of like a panic room? Yeah, I think so. (laughs) It's got to be it. Folks, I think that'll do it for Hereditary. Yeah. One of the best horror movies of the past 10 years, for sure. Not a lot of laughs in this episode. It's a very heavy, dark movie. It is, yeah. But a movie that we both loved. Yeah, it's very intricate, very detailed. There's a lot to pick through. I think your first time watching it, you're going to notice some things, but it rewards multiple viewings. It rewards reading what other people are writing and saying about it. I feel like this was the first time I watched it again since the theater, but it's not because I don't like it. Oh, yeah. There was definitely like some dread of having to return to the material because it it was like so traumatizing. Oh, I know. It stuck with me for days after watching it. And it is weird to think that there are people out there who just completely disagree with that. Yeah, I know. It's like it was a bore. Yeah, they just are not into it. I don't know. It worked on me for sure. Same. On a level that most other horror movies just don't. I don't know if it's the real human emotion part, like the grief and the trauma and and that element of it or what, but it definitely affected me. I think we've run long enough. No recommendations this week. One more, the great finale to this. Oh, yeah. Special treat for our listeners. Everyone's going to be so excited. (laughs) (laughs) We are. I know people are going to, when they see that hit the feed, they're going to be like, what? Stay tuned for a special Halloween episode. I know we're overloading you with episodes, so we'll take a little bit of a breather to kick off November. Stay tuned up to date with what's going on by following the show on Twitter at greatest pod. Please make sure you're subscribed on Apple podcasts. Podbean, Leave us a or review, wherever. please. It, it really just brightens our lives. If you're listening to the show, if you're new to the program and you're enjoying it, please leave us a rating and review five stars only. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> None of that other shit, please. <laughs> If you'd like a sticker for free, we will mail one to you if you let us know on Twitter. We also do listener requests. We have one coming up after The Greatest October. We'd like to get to more if we can. We have our own schedule that we're trying to keep to as well, so we'll we'll work it in there somewhere. And find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983, and Matt Crosby. It seems fucking wild that we're already basically done with another Greatest October. It's weird. I feel like I have to be approaching 
being on Letterboxd for a year. I feel like that started. It was January. In January, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so pretty crazy. <laughs> I wouldn't have <laughs> yeah, thought. I'm sure people are blown away. They're like, Matt's been on Letterboxd for a year? <laughs> what the fuck? No, it's just another reminder of how it's time like a hereditary is level fleeting thing moment. that just is life is just passing me by. Oh, yeah. It's wrapping up for us, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> Unlike this episode, which is just never ending. That's right. I'm already, a long I, goodbye. I'm having about as much dread about editing this episode as I am about Hereditary in general. It's like that horrifying. Yeah, it's going to be a rough one. <laughs> All right, folks. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon with our finale of The Greatest October. I'm looking down the hole. You're looking up at me. You're cold and tired. That is easy to see. Lower the rope to you, a bucket on the line. Your membrane will be soft and smooth, and your heart will be mine. It rubs the lotion on its skin, or as it gets the hose again. It rubs the lotion on its skin, or as it gets the hose again. Yes, precious, it gets the
Please, man. What are you doing? We're trying to get home. We're already late. We're late for dinner. It's way past 6.30. Why is this happening? I saw that gun go shooting out the window. Her uncle is joining us. She hasn't seen him in a very long while. We're late. We've got miles to go. Please, we have to get home. She's sick. Oh, 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 God. Ah! Ah! 